I'm not going to read the different references. They're there on the handout, so you can um, you can notice where each of these comes from as I read them. But I'm going to just uh, read them uh, straight through. And uh, this is this is the word of our God. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, says the Lord, who steal my words, every one from his neighbor, Behold, I am against the prophets, says the Lord, who use their tongues and say, He says, Behold, I am against those who prophesy false dreams, says the Lord, and tell them and cause my people to err by their lies and by their recklessness. Yet I did not send them or command them. Therefore, they shall not profit this people at all, says the Lord. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite one another and devour one another, Beware lest you be consumed by one another. So far in the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this, your word, and the emphasis that you have given us in it. And we do ask, as those who want to speak and think beautifully and wisely before you, as those who want to serve you with our tongues as well as with our actions and hearts, we ask that your gracious spirit would dwell within us so that we would be gracious. We ask that your truthful spirit would dwell within us so that we would speak the truth. We ask that your mighty spirit would dwell within us and give us the strength in this generation to be people of the truth. We ask, Holy Spirit, for you to work in us even in this hour, that we might meditate on your command and love it and live in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. But if I was to ask you, what is the ninth commandment? I suspect uh, some of us would probably summarize it as, you shall not lie. Uh, That's how all of our children's books summarize the Ninth Commandment. It's how all of our children's songs summarize the Ninth Commandment. I have children's things 
stuck in my head, obviously. But it's also how Grandma's uh, framed Ten Commandments poster, or it wasn't a poster, but you know the nice Ten Commandments that hung above the bed there next to the the Aryan Jesus. Uh, it, you know, it, it also summarized that commandment that way: "You shall not lie." This afternoon, when my wife asked. Uh, what I was preaching on tonight, I said, the ninth commandment, you shall not lie. And then I thought, my my introduction is talking about the fact that that's not actually the wording, is it? It's uh, it's too general in one sense. It's too general. It's It's a part of what the command is about, but it's not specifically what the command is about. The command in terms of the just understanding the the specific way it's framed is framed in the context of the courtroom, isn't it? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And that was so important in those days. They didn't have security cameras. We pulled in here. Mia and I looked up and waved, hi, Mike and Mary, as we parked in case they're, you know, on their security camera at home. But they didn't have that back then, right? There's no pulling that up in the courtroom. There's no DNA. There's no fingerprints. There, uh, There's no... Uh, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, all, all they had was, these are the witnesses. And so uh, it was, it's still important, of course, but there was even a, a, a more powerful weight to the kind of uh, life and death power a witness had in those days in the court, because uh, you couldn't have a, a five-year trial drawn out at the end of which you appeal, and somewhere along the way they run out and find that Cumbies has a video camera that caught you driving the other direction 20 minutes before the crime happened. Right? There's, there's none of that. So they had their witnesses come in. If there were witnesses enough to convict you, whether or not it was, it was a true witness or not, the, the judgment would be given, the sentence would be executed, whether that had to do with your life or whether that had to do with your... Um, just your reputation. And so there's this commandment that specifically is honed in on the courtroom. How you speak about your neighbor will affect that neighbor's life and reputation. Uh, it's also, it's also uh, not, you shall not lie, is, is also not the best way to phrase it when we even think broader than just the courtroom. Even as we take that, that, I, that uh, teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he shows us there. Here's the specific case, you shall not murder. But if you even hate, right, that makes it more broad. And so that same application to the ninth commandment. Here's the courtroom, you shall not bear false witness. Now let's widen that out. Don't bear false witness anywhere in life. It's still too specific in the wrong direction to say you shall not lie because lying is just one part of how you can bear false witness. There are other ways that you can bear false witness against someone without an outright lie. And that's what I really want to hone in on uh, tonight, what I want us to think about. Uh, But I, I want us to think about it as something very serious Did you notice there in Proverbs chapter 6, and you can look at it again if you didn't notice it before, seven things are abominations to God. There's the look, there's the the feet, 
There are the hands. There's the heart. That's four of them. Three of them are the tongue. Isn't that astonishing? That you look at that and you say, why did you need to say lying tongue and a false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord? Well, it's three different angles on the same sin of the tongue. And of course, we could have read from James, the tongue is like a a devouring fire that consumes. And this is a very a very powerful command from God that really ought to be taken very seriously. That We've tainted it, I think, by reducing it down to don't lie. Because our sinful hearts want to say, don't lie, little white lie. And, and we want to say, little white lies don't hurt anyone. Or we want to say, as long as my lie doesn't, doesn't uh, affect your reputation, as long as I'm just lying about stuff I've done, that's okay, right? So we, we make it nothing. And yet the word of God has it as such a big thing, how we use our words. And so I want to consider uh, three types of false witness. These are broad categories. There might be others, uh, but I want to think about three types of bearing false witness tonight. The first is, is rumors. Uh, bearing false witness with rumors. Again, if you look at Proverbs 6 there, what's the last one? It's the rumor. The one who sows discord among brethren. But it may or may not be a lie. Did you hear what Jesse did? May or may not be a lie about Jesse, but I'm spreading a rumor about Jesse, even if it's true, that is certainly not intended for his betterment, his welfare, his reputation, those who sow discord among brethren. Oh, well, I think, I think you were right about that, Abby. But, you know, Jesse was saying no the other day. And so, sowing discord, right? Who's really the one that's causing the contention? It's, it's the one who's telling the rumor. The rumor can be true or false. The rumor can be a lie or the rumor can be the truth. But often, even when it's the truth, there's uh, an inflating of it. Uh, I really like how Dauma in his book on the Ten Commandments uh, uses the language of inflation. He, he writes, the verbal inflation rate is high and a lot of verbal counterfeit enters circulation. Doesn't that just sum it up? How we talk and how we engage with each other and how we type things on social media. The inflation rate is high even when it's the truth we exaggerate the truth a lot, whether to make ourselves look good or someone else look bad. And a lot of verbal counterfeit, that is a lot of just plain old lies inter circulation. In a court of law, they actually have a, a phrase for the rumor. It's hearsay, right? If I'm asked a question, did you... Were you at the Grange this morning at 9 a.m., Nathan, and did you see Jesse enter the building? If I were to be in the court of law and say, well, no, I wasn't at the Grange this morning, but I know several witnesses who saw Jesse enter the Grange at 9 a.m. I don't know why I keep picking on Jesse because he's right there. Uh, 
<laughs> Nathan really has it out for Jesse tonight. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, ugh, horrible if Jesse was at the Grange at 9 a.m. this morning. Uh, but, you know, uh, but, but any good lawyer at that point would say, uh, objection, that's hearsay. The question was, Nathan, did you see Jesse enter the Grange at 9 a.m.? You just admitted you weren't there. Your answer is no, but you didn't stop. That's hearsay. You, you aren't the other people who witnessed it. And any good judge would say, that's, that's right, sustained. No, no accepting that. But what has already happened if it's a jury that's judging it? It's too late. Well, there must be a lot of people who saw Jesse go help set up for church on Sunday morning, right? It doesn't matter if the judge says inadmissible, but, but hearsay, it can, it can ruin people's lives and reputations. And outside of court, rumor uh, has this nasty name, gossip. Um, gossip can be piously presented, can't it? It doesn't feel... It doesn't feel wicked when, for example, at prayer meeting, Bill says any other prayer requests, and I say, well, Astrid told me this afternoon. Well, maybe Astrid told me, but she doesn't want everyone else to know. That's actually a really hard one for me as a pastor. I, I show up to prayer meeting, any other prayer requests? Oh, well, I talked to this person today, but they didn't say that was public. This is why I'm really obnoxious when people text or email me a prayer request, and I write back, was this supposed to be public? Because I don't want to send it out and then get that, that email, which happened, Karen and I both had this happen occasionally over the years. That wasn't for everyone else. Oh, okay. Well, that, that can ruin people's reputations. It can hurt their lives, but we can present things piously. I'm just concerned for Katrina. And I thought you all should know so that you can pray for her because I'm concerned. So pious. And yet it's a, it's a fiery thing, the tongue, and it can devour and consume. Uh, rumors can be sugar-coated. Sugar-coated. Like, well, yeah, Bill has this fault, but otherwise, salt of the earth right? Sugar-coated. You put a little bit in there. Oh, he's a really great guy, but... And isn't it true? The sugar-coating almost makes it worse. It's like putting whatever bad thing you're saying in italics or highlighting it, right? He's a really great guy, but here's, here's his fault. But we can convince ourselves we're not doing anything wrong because we sugar-coated it. We said one good thing about them and five bad things, so it, it doesn't actually balance out. Such spreading of rumors against neighbors can ruin, ruin, ruin. I know I'm repeating that, but we need to have it sink in because we are in a culture that doesn't care about whether something is right or wrong and doesn't care about uh, harnessing the tongue it's all about ruining people's reputations without actually doing the research to see if it's true and this can hurt and destroy futures. But furthermore, for us, it should really matter that we not be a people who are uh, rumor mongers because 
whether what we say is the truth or not, such spreading gossip is against the ninth commandment. For it is, it's wrong biblically to talk about a sinner instead of to a sinner. What a subtle thing that sounds different, isn't it? To talk about a sinner instead of to a sinner. But that's what Christ emphasizes. Matthew 5, 23 and 24, Christ tells us that if you're on your way to offer an, uh, to take an offering to the altar at the temple for worship, and you remember, oh, I have this against so-and-so, what do you do? You go ahead and you offer your offering, and then after worship, you chat about how so-and-so has done you wrong? No, Christ says, leave the gift, and go find the brother, and make it right. Pursue peace instead of taking it to other people. Matthew 18, there's a sin. This other person, you at least believe the other person is committing or has committed, and you're supposed to not talk to others about it. You're supposed to go directly to that person. And then if they reject your uh, rebuke, maybe they don't agree that they've sinned, then you take a witness. It can be good to take an elder as your witness, because the elders will end up getting involved eventually somehow, probably, anyway, if, if no one repents first. But you see, in both of those texts, Christ is saying, go directly to the sinner. Don't talk about the sinner. Talk to the sinner. In fact, that's occasionally I've been asked to go as the witness to confront someone that second time. And what I try to say, if I can get a word in first, is I don't want to hear what we're going to talk to them about. I want to go there, and I want to hear you confront the person, and I want to hear them get to respond without having any preconceived thoughts of, uh, on the subject myself. Because that's uh, the best way to avoid the second way we can break the ninth commandment, the second aspect of false witness we find in Scripture, is the rash judgment. The rash judgment. The rash judgment is a response to the rumor or to the lie. The rash judgment is uh, getting caught up in the gossip and deciding it's true without having enough evidence. And that itself is a sin. Let me share a couple of examples. I'll give you just three, but there's a ton of them in Scripture. I think the saddest example in Scripture of this is King David. 2 Samuel chapter 16. He's on the run, and uh, this man Ziba comes to him. Ziba is the servant of Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. If you remember your history there, Jonathan was David's best friend. He died. David had promised to care for his offspring. Mephibosheth is his son, who's a cripple. David brings him into his house. David brings him in with amazing thought. Is there anyone from the house of Saul to whom I may show God's mercy? That's astonishing. David saying, my worst enemy. Is there anyone of his house to whom I can show the mercy and grace and favor of God? And he makes Mephibosheth an adopted son. And yet when he's on the run from his own son, uh, Absalom, Ziba the servant comes and says, well, Mephibosheth's not here because he is hedging his bets. He sent me to you, 
but he's going to Absalom and he's swearing allegiance to him. Was that true? Well, 2 Samuel chapter 19, Mephibosheth finally gets his word in and he says, absolutely not. I'm a cripple and I couldn't get to you in time. You were on the run for your life. I didn't want to slow you down. So I sent help, food and money to you through my servant because I didn't want to slow you down. And I think the indication of 2 Samuel 19 is he's the one telling the truth. But here's the problem. Back when David heard it from Ziba, even though Mephibosheth had never done anything against David and never done anything that we have recorded to cause David any doubts, nonetheless, David jumps to the conclusion without evidence, without giving Mephibosheth the the time of day to share his opinion. And he says, uh, well, Ziba, you get everything that is Mephibosheth's. Well, then what does he do having declared publicly with many witnesses that he believed Ziba and was stripping everything away from Mephibosheth when he finally hears the truth later, but he's already promised all this wealth, what does he end up having to do? He ends up giving half of the wealth to Ziba anyway. Because even though he chose wrongly, he publicly made a rash judgment. Luke 13, uh, there's a story, uh, an account of uh, Pontius Pilate sending some troops into the temple and they just massacre a group of Jews who are offering uh, their, their sacrifices to God. Their blood mingled with the blood of the sacrifice. Such a, a horrible uh, thing to envision. And the disciples make a rash judgment. They say, oh, there must have been some really wicked Jews among them, or, or that kind of thing wouldn't have happened. Remember what Christ says about their rash judgment. He says, you know, it, it's not to you to make that judgment. But whenever you hear of something like this, ask yourself whether you are right with God. So the rash judgment sometimes gets in our way, Christ is saying, of, of actually growing and repenting of our own sins. We're too busy looking for the, the speck on the brother's shoulder or on his, in his eye when we are caught up in our own sins. A similar thing happens with a rash judgment in John 9, of course. Here's the man born blind. Who sinned, say the disciples, uh, this man or his parents, that he was born with this disability? And in that instance, Christ said, neither, but so that God might be glorified. Uh, We make rash judgments when we ought to be looking to God, repenting before God, or waiting for enough evidence. And this is one way that we can break the, uh, the ninth commandment. Dalma writes, anyone who depends on media, and then he lists the media of his day. This isn't that old of a book, but what he lists made me laugh a little because it's like radio and newspaper, and television, you know, and I had read the word media, and my brain went immediately to Facebook, and Instagram, and, you know, things like that, but um, it's just 10 years old, and already out of date, uh, but <clears throat> anyway, the quote is still quite excellent, he, he writes, anyone who depends on the media has seen how the most contradictory judgments 
about the most complicated problems can be pronounced as quick as a wink. I think that's it. This is the culture we live in. All around us, whether it's Instagram, Facebook, whether it's the news, whether it's your newspaper, whether it's, uh, whether it's the radio, whatever the source, the media is, we see contradictory judgments about the most complicated problems pronounced as quick as a wink. Uh, there have been a number of uh, articles and studies put out about this by... Um, Older news men and women, not really that old, but old enough that they remember you know, working in the 70s and how you had to check and double check and triple check all your sources before it went to press. And, and you can go and find articles where they talk about how the, the editors have changed the approach. Now the goal is to be the first person to publish on anything that happens, even if you're wrong and you have to backpedal later. Well, that surely doesn't lead us to the truth. It brings us to many rash judgments. And can any of us say we don't make rash judgments about the president? Because we just believe the first thing we see on the little screen in front of us or about uh, what is or isn't true in terms of something to do with science, because we saw it somewhere without actually checking any of the sources. Um, and you can pick any number of other things, right? We, we just have this assumption that you watch a, a, some kind of documentary made by a, a college student that hasn't been fact-checked, maybe. Um, Holly and I very much enjoyed a kind of a travel TV show a while back and, and it was quite enjoyable and they were looking at uh, different cultures on certain things with a, a special emphasis on, on um, in, in the environment. And uh, Holly told me, you know, we, we enjoyed it, but, but there were a lot of articles written by scientists saying that a lot of what they said in this Netflix documentary was, was just kind of quack science. Well, that doesn't mean it's necessarily wrong, does it? But it at least raises a number of questions. And, and yet we, we run to these types of things. We make rash judgments, and therefore we break the ninth commandment. And it's probable that when we look there at Matthew 7, 1 and 2, this is precisely what Christ is warning us about. Uh, remember this, this verse that has caused many of us struggles with whether or not we're we're allowed to actually judge anyone on anything. Christ says, do not judge. This is Matthew 7, 1 and 2. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Well, of course, scripture shows us many times that we have to judge a lot of things. If we're going to be people of the truth, we have to assess and, and evaluate if someone holds particular position, maybe in a, a community, or maybe in the church, or if, or if you're a parent in the home, you, you can't just not judge. You have to make judgments, but it's probable Christ is talking about the rash judgment here. By the measure you use, you will be measured. 
Christ is warning us, be careful. Make sure that the measurement is accurate. Don't just, um, the, the way some of us cook, <clears throat> I enjoy cooking, uh, two tablespoons. Done. Was it two tablespoons? Was it three tablespoons? Was it one and a half? You know, uh, I think it was right. We have to be much more cautious. It's one thing if you're cooking a meal, especially if it's only for yourself. It's another thing if you're making judgments about other people and it's going to affect their their lives and their welfare. So we, we have the rumor. We have the rash judgment. And then, of course, we have lying because... Yes, lying isn't the whole commandment, but it is a big part of the commandment, isn't it? The conscious choice to lie, not just sharing truth that you shouldn't have shared, not just making rash judgments, but a conscious choice to lie. Slander in the courtroom or libel. The conscious falsehood. Now, we all know what lying is. But uh, I, I was struck when I was reading this week in one book, this question. What about when we're telling a joke and the joke, that this is packed full of potential problems, the joke is, is kind of among friends about one of our friends and it embellishes the truth. I, th- I think there are a number, number of very uh, uh, sticky things about this example, right? You're making a joke about someone. Uh, that in itself raises questions of, is it being done graciously? Is it a loving thing to do in the first place? Or are you not loving your neighbor as yourself by doing it? But let's say that, you know, among friends, you can jest about uh, about each other, and we've probably all had a good time laughing about, especially when we're with people we know really well. And you're doing it out of love, okay. You're embellishing the truth of some story about them. Is the embellishment necessarily a lie? It was a very interesting discussion. Uh, I won't I won't just quote the discussion to you, but the the challenge was perhaps it's okay. As long as it's clear where the truth ends and where the embellishment begins. But if people are left very confused about whether this is true or not, I, I love the facial expressions I'm seeing because this is how I felt reading this. It's an interesting question, isn't it? How many of you have thought about telling an innocent joke about a friend, a, a funny story about a friend, as something that could be breaking the ninth commandment. I think we have to be very cautious, even with things as innocent as that. What about, what about lies that the scripture doesn't condemn? You, you know exactly the ones I'm talking about, don't you? Because <laughs> I think of it as, what every high school boy wants to stump his Sunday school teacher with. That's how I think of it. Uh, but there, there's other ways you could phrase it. What every um, person who enjoys being the devil's advocate, 
wants to stump his pastor with, right? It, uh, Corey Ten Boone. You got the Jews under the table. One sister says, no, we don't have Jews under the table. The other sister says, they're under the table. Who's, is one of them sinning or are they both doing okay things? We got the scripture text. We have Rahab. Rahab lying about the spies. Oh, some try to disassociate the, the praise that Rahab receives for her faith in Hebrews 11 and in James 2. By the way, how many people in the Old Testament get mentioned twice in the epistles? You know how many that is? Abraham gets mentioned any number of times. Noah gets mentioned at least twice. Job gets mentioned twice. Elijah? Once? Twice? Rahab gets mentioned twice! That's quite a statement about her faith, isn't it? Rahab gets mentioned for her faith, and some try to say, well, if you look at it, it's she's, she's praised for the hospitality she showed them. But not for lying. That was still a sin on her part. But if you look at James... James 2, where it talks about her. It talks about uh, her in her welcoming them and or receiving them and in her sending them out. And it, it's hard to conceive of how the Holy Spirit wouldn't be saying what's in the middle isn't praiseworthy, right? The Holy Spirit is telling us the whole episode of Rahab is an example of faith. What do you do with that? Is lying okay then? Or there's other, there are other examples in Scripture as well. There are the midwives in Egypt. Remember, uh, take all the boys and throw them in the river and kill them or whatever it is that they're supposed to do. And, and the midwives, I'm not trying to be flippant, but it's almost like the midwives say, all right, I think I'm going to stop at Starbucks on the way. <laughs> oh, what do you know? The baby's already out and alive and I'm not needed here. Uh, and they're praised. For that by God. That's a positive thing that they're doing according to God. Or we can think of uh, another example, and I, I forgot to write down the, the uh, reference here, but it's right at the end of 2 Samuel. And a woman hides, very Rahab-like, she hides some people in a well who are being hunted. And when the people ask where'd they go, she says, they went that way, and they're in the well. None of these are condemned in Scripture. So, so what do we do? do with that part of me wants to make you all write down an answer before i keep preaching and reveal that i i don't have an absolute answer on this you know the early church fathers almost unanimously condemned every instance of that saint augustine thought that each of these were examples of of sin they, they saw no instance in which saying anything but the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth could be permissible. And I wouldn't be super surprised if at least one of you shares that opinion. Um, a lot of Christians do. And if that's where you stand, then if the government comes knocking on your door and there are people under your table, then you know how you have to answer, don't you? I, I don't say that mockingly. You, you know your conscience dictates, I have them hidden under the table. And then you have to pray 
that the same result will take place as happened in Corey Ten Boone's sister's instance, where the Nazis thought, well, that's got to be a joke. Who would ever tell us they had Jews hidden underneath the table? But you don't know that that will happen. But if that's how you think about it. A lot of us, though, we look at these scriptural examples and we note several things that they all have in common. For one thing, they all have to do with either warfare or outright murder. Warfare or outright murder. It's two different things. I'm not saying warfare is outright murder. I'm saying that there are two examples given this isn't everyday life. This is in war or with outright murder coming against people. And in all of these instances, there is nothing less than life on the line. That's very important for us to note if we're going to say, well, I could potentially lie someday like Rahab did. And it would be an act of faith, not a sin. Then we have to make sure we're clear. Uh, We live in a day and age that wants to blur the line with what is on the line with certain things. So we no longer think, well, there's life and then there's quality of life. And both matter. Both matter to God. Both ought to matter to us. But one is distinctly different from the other. There's a difference between killing someone and and seeing them on the side of the road with a sign and not pulling over. You might be sinning in both instances, but one is distinctly worse in one sense because you're taking their very life instead of helping them have a better life. Quality of life is not the same as life on the line. And so when we talk about What is a right reason to sin? We need to be really careful about that. Nothing less biblically than life on the line counts. Someone's quality of life, your quality of life, aren't sufficient biblical reasons. Protection of an innocent person is also a part of that equation. It's not in any of these instances, a situation in where someone robbed a bank and now you're hiding them and lying for them so that the government won't catch them. So we have to be cautious. It's not a situation where we're protecting wicked, wicked people by covering over their sin from the government. So if ever these things are to be permissible to deceive, it has to be in the protection of life, perhaps as, as protecting spies during warfare, protection of innocent life every day. It must be a situation where there is a seeming tension between the sixth and the ninth commandments. The sixth commandment, you shall not murder And the ninth commandment, you shall not lie. Because remember, tied up in the sixth commandment is not just not to take your life from you, but to actually defend and guard the lives of our neighbors. And so there has to be this seeming tension between that 
and the ninth commandment. No falsehood short of this can in any way be biblically defended. If you want to think through this very hard discussion at more length, I would recommend reading, I've quoted him twice already tonight, because this section was really good by him, about a dauma. Uh, and um, after I preach on the Tenth Commandment, I am happy to loan my copy out. Uh, if you want to get even more deep than that, uh, there are other books I can hand you as well. Well, with all those sins before us, uh, just as we wrap up, we want to think about the positive as well, don't we? When we talk about not bearing false witness, what is with this commandment the positive thing required of us? Ephesians 4.25 tells us, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. The, the positive that's required in this commandment is that we be people of the truth. And how can we expect anything less from ourselves? Our Savior, the one on whom our very religion and faith is founded, describes himself as the truth. And how wayward to say, we are the followers of the truth, but we won't be people who speak the truth. We won't be people who love and defend the truth. So we want to be those who speak the truth with our neighbors. This is where I think both Heidelberg and the shorter, uh, I'm sorry, the larger catechism both say things very beautifully. So let me just conclude us tonight with reading how they end their questions here. We've already read together from the Heidelberg Catechism. I should love the truth, speak it candidly, and openly acknowledge it. And I should do what I can to defend and advance my neighbor's honor and reputation. The Westminster Larger Catechism, in addition to speaking only truth in all matters of justice and judgment, tells us that we are to speak in all things with charitable esteem of our neighbors. We don't talk like that anymore, do we? Charitable esteem. The best possible without lying, (laughs) without making uh, them better than they are, we give them the best charitable esteem, the presumption until evidence shows otherwise of esteem. Loving, desiring, larger catechism goes on, and rejoicing in their good name. Do we rejoice in the good name of others in our society? I, I think not. So sorrowing for and covering over their infirmities, freely acknowledging gifts and graces, defending their innocence, having a ready receiving of a good report about them, and an unwillingness to admit of an evil report without sufficient evidence, discouraging talebearers, flatterers, and slanderers. There's a lot to think on there, but it's very countercultural, isn't it? We are called by the ninth commandment to speak and say beautifully because we are a people of the truth. Let's pray.